Thanks, y'all can sit. Um, let me do a brief recap before kind of diving into the message. Obviously, in this context, within this context of a church plant, we've been kind of going through some beliefs and distinctives, uh, meaning what defines us as a church. And so we've talked about our reform soteriology, what it means to be a church that is on mission, but also embrace discipleship and those particular importance. And today, we'll be getting into, as I prayed, you may have heard, God's design for men and women. In particular, God's design for men and women in, in marriage. And in, in the future, we'll t- I'll talk about God's design for men and women within the context of the local church. So that's kind of the direction I'm going into this morning. So let me, let me begin with this. Um, as I was praying and pondering and writing this message, um, this question kind of came up. What does it mean to be a Christian who lives in this world? If we're talking about beliefs and distinctives within the church, we're obviously Christians who live in the world. What does it mean to be a Christian in this world? What is, what is it about being a Christian that sets them apart from non-Christian friends, neighbors, co-workers, etc., right? What distinguishes you from non-Christians? The short answer is we worship and serve King Jesus. Christians believe they are exclusively saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's an exclusive statement that distinguishes us from anyone else. Our Christians' faith sets us apart from the world that wants us to be very inclusive. But it's not only what is believed that sets a Christian apart from the world but it's being radically changed by the gospel that sets us apart from the world. When Christians live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1.27, the world, for better or for worse, will notice. What sets Christians apart from the world will be compelling to some and repulsive to others. My own experience is this as, as well. I met a bunch of Christians before I got saved, and they were different. It's like, huh. At the time, strange, but different. It was compelling to me. I say all this because being a Christian means you will be against certain beliefs and practices postulated by the surrounding culture, and being a Christian means you will be for specific beliefs and practices. And as a church, we need to be ready and willing to graciously graciously respond to those who disagree with us. And we need to be ready to receive those who are compelled to Christ, who are compelled to his church. In 21st century America, there is not a topic that causes more a visceral response than sexuality, gender, and marriage. Just turn on the news, right? The Christian and biblical message of marriage and gender, etc., is either going to repel or compel people. Therefore, it is vital that we get a clear understanding about what the Bible tells us in such matters. We've got to have clarity here. In this church and in our denomination, we have made it clear that we are complementarian. It's the $10,000 theological word, complementarian. We believe that complementarianism is not just a theory, 
but it is God's biblical design for how men and women should understand themselves and then how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So perhaps I need to define complementarianism so that you know what I mean. Complementarianism is the biblical perspective that God created men and women equal in person and for different roles so that men and women can, you hear the word, complement one another. Further, when men and women live out God's design for their lives, you're bringing glory to God. And so this morning, I want to I look at several passages from the Bible that must shape how we understand how to live out God's design. And I'll be very specific about what God's design means for marriage. Is there any other, any other hotter topic, right, where you can get chastised for, for holding? Be hard-pressed to think about another topic that would bring more criticism than this. But we want to be compelled by what God's Word says. Let's look at Genesis at the very beginning. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And then I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. These creation passages are the foundation of God's design for sexuality, gender, and marriage. Moreover, we will see how the New Testament dips back into Genesis 1 and 2 to explain gender roles in marriage. So let's, let's look at the text. Let's begin in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. So after God has created the world on the sixth day, we read, then God said, let us, notice the plural there, let us make man in our image, plural, plural again, after our likeness, just briefly, we see the fingerprints of the Trinitarian God all over the text here, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now listen to this theology, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now for Genesis 2, 18 to 25, which gives us more details about the creation of man and woman. Genesis 2, let's start in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of 
man, in that statement, I just imagine so much joy coming from him. So much joy. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, a lot of text there. But you can see just from reading, critical if we're going to understand what it means for God to create man and woman and all the implications that exist with that as well. Shortly after moving back to Minnesota from seminary in 2010, I began to attend St. John's University, um, just north of St. Cloud. I just wanted to do more theological studies. And it was in this class where um, there was a variety of students. We had, I had Benedictine monks in my class, men who were studying for the priesthood, other men and women who were studying for PhDs to come. And uh, this particular class was called Patristics, which basically means a study of the early church fathers. And in particular, we were studying the role of women in the church. And I, I remember this so clearly. We were talking about it, and, and all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the gals in the class began to object. Basically saying, I, I can't believe women were treated like that. And, and for, in some cases, she had a good case to make, for sure. But her argument began to rail against some of my fundamental beliefs, which is complementarianism. And so, when, when the time is right in the midst of this discussion with this very diverse group of people, I kind of raise my hand and I basically say to her and to the class, I'm complementarian. And you could just see her eyes like become saucers. She's like, she could not believe what I just said. You're complementarian? Well, yeah, I am. Because it's, that's what I read in God's word. All of a sudden, these assumptions, I imagine, start coming to her, her mind as if I locked my wife in a closet only to let her out to cook, clean, and change diapers, right? So that's the, kind of the perception she had. And, I, and I'll tell you what I told her after she began to ask about my marriage in the middle of class. I said, I've never met a more gifted, capable, godly, and intelligent woman in my life. And it's my duty and privilege as her husband to see her flourish in her gifts while we walk out God's design for marriage. After the conversation, my, my classmate never spoke to me again, even though she sat next to me. I tried. But that clearly caused an offense. Where our worlds collided and divided is with our separate meanings of the word equality and what equality has to do with men and women. The word equality gets thrown around a lot. The culture says this about equality. Here's my, my perception of a cultural definition of equality. For men and women to be equal, they need to receive a paycheck and they both need to contribute to society. Now, while I have no problem with working women, this is a shallow view of equality. It's shallow. Often culture equates equality with what a woman or man can or cannot do with the opposite sex as the point of comparison. 
isn't shocking news for, for you. You know how much Sharice makes? Okay, from the, you know, I'll tell them. From the occasional side job. Zero. Zero. Nothing. And culture is going to tell me that because she doesn't earn a paycheck or have a full-time job, that she's not being treated equally? That's garbage. That's complete garbage. Sharice works harder than me. She raises our kiddo, which is of infinite value. She supports me, which is like having a full-time job. My point is this. Equality is not given to us by culture, but equality is inherited in God's design. First and foremost, this is a theological issue. It has nothing to do with function and has everything to do with being an image bearer of God. When you hear the, the Latin phrase, imago Dei, that's where it comes from, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We are all image bearers of God. Complementarianism begins with what men and women are in God, who God has created them to be. And they are image bearers. Let me go back to my story for a moment. Although the conversation just happened kind of in the middle of class, um, I wish I would have asked my classmate about Genesis 1, 26 to 27, Genesis 2, 18 to 25, and what she thought about God's design for men and women in creation. If I was thinking well and quick enough, I would have gone there. I also would have gone to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was infected with a sin nature. When sin entered the world, God's design for men and women was broken. What was created as beautiful is now tainted with sin. We should not be surprised that because of the fall, biblical sexuality and marriage are twisted, disregarded, and manipulated. Genesis 3 helps us to understand why the culture and, frankly, my former classmate challenged God's design. Here, here's part of Genesis 3 where we read about the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, starting in verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of, the, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In the garden, it's like Adam and Eve took a fine piece of china and chucked it against the ground. Pain for women in childbearing increased. Genesis 3.16, the ability of a man to work and provide for his family became difficult. Genesis 3.17 and 18, what was supposed to be a beautiful, complementarian marriage turned into conflict. Genesis 3.16, the fall created distortion. The distortion was that Eve would now rebel against her husband's authority and Adam would misuse that authority to rule forcefully and even harshly over Eve. Sin messed everything up. Sin messed everything up. However, you 
here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel restores what is broken. The gospel takes what is ugly and makes it beautiful. When we allow the gospel to affect our lives, then we can live out God's design as men and women properly. Christ did not suffer and die so that your marriages and singleness would, be, would remain broken. Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead so that you can apply the gospel to what is broken and receive restoration. Also, applying the gospel to our lives means that we need to work out toward the change that God asks from us. And it takes work to live out God's design, right? We all know that. It takes work. Because there is a deconstruction and disregard of God's design and purpose all around us. Husbands are affected by how he leads his wife and children because of sin. A wife is affected by how she responds to her husband. The deconstruction and disregard of God's design are delaying the development of boys to become men, to become godly men, and delaying the development of girls to become godly women. Gender-specific responsibility is getting chucked out the door for personal desires, right? It's just how you feel. That becomes the mantra. How do you feel? If he feels good, do it. As a result, husbands, wives, and children are confused. Some people are choosing to live in brokenness instead of beauty. But it is in the brokenness where the church must step up and display the gospel. The church can display God's design and purpose for men and women to receive healing, hope, restoration, and how we live out our lives with God's design in view. It, it wasn't too long ago when Genesis 2.24 was assumed. It would just assume Genesis 2.24 was a fact. Today, in years to come, it needs to be explicitly stated. Biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. Here's that verse again, because this is really important in the New Testament. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What is written in Genesis is affirmed over and again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses, Paul, and Jesus talk about sexuality, gender, and marriage with Genesis 2.24 as the foundation. What we read here is God's design is particular. A man marrying another man, a woman marrying another woman, one man marrying multiple women is not a part of God's design. A man marrying a woman only to cheat on his wife is not a part of God's design. A woman or man who changes his or her gender in order to fulfill a desire or feeling is not a part of God's design. All this is sin and is a result of sin from the fall, which we read in Genesis 3. So I say all this, and this is extremely important to say, I say all this um, with, without an ounce of ill will or hate to those who disagree with me. I really I don't. No hate, no ill will. I, I say all this as a man who has been broken because of my own sin and who continues to rely on God's grace to see brokenness turned into beauty. I say all that because seen a lot of that, I've lived a lot of that, and I know the pain that exists. And I also know the hope and the healing and the restoration that comes from believing the gospel. 
with Genesis 1 to 3 as the foundation. Let's, let's now move into the New Testament so that we can see more specifics about men and women in, in marriage. From my experience and from reading a massive amount of pages about biblical marriage, there are two words used in the Bible which make men and women uncomfortable. The culture has jettisoned and labeled these words as bad or bigoted. Today I'm going to try to redeem them. The words are headship and submission. And it's a tragedy that some folks in the church have followed the culture and moved away from the beauty of biblical headship and biblical submission. Like I said, these words need to be redeemed. When, when rightly understood, they fill in the glorious picture of God's design for marriage. The Apostle Paul, knowing exactly what God said in Genesis 1-3, to builds out God's design for men and women in marriage in Ephesians 5. I got to preach this text one time at, at a wedding, and it was it was awesome. I was so grateful that the husband, that the fiance, what are they? Husband, wife, to be, wanted this text to be preached. Here it is. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there isn't much debate about the comparison being made in this passage, right? Uh, a marriage between a man and a woman is analogous, analogous excuse me, between the relationship between Christ and his church. Paul also says that the relationship between Christ and the church teaches us the nature of marriage between a man and a woman. What a remarkable picture, right? Where the wheels fall off the wagon for some people is how marriage properly refracts Christ's relationship to the church. The debate is in the details, so let's ask the detailed questions. What does it mean for a husband to be the head of his wife? Question one. And what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Question two. And I hope and I think we'll find that male headship and female submission complement one another and are beautiful. Let's first talk about headship. The headship of a husband is a unique leadership position or role and that he works to establish order so that the wife and the children can thrive and flourish. If you're looking for a definition of headship, hold on to that. Husbands, you are called to create a culture, an environment, a home where your wife and kids can flourish. Now in the Greek, headship is this word kephale. There are endless chapters and books in articles attempting to explain just this one word. Let me, get, let me give you the bottom line. Kephale implies authority. For example, there are over 2,000 non-biblical ancient Greek documents, manuscripts, that use the word kephale to describe the authority of a government or person over people or over an individual. Headship means the same thing in Ephesians 5. The husband has authority over his Wife, I would, apply, I would also apply another quality to headship, which is leadership. What we've read in Genesis and Ephesians is that men were created with a unique leadership capacity. It's not that women can't lead. That's not the message. They absolutely can. However, male leadership in the home is unique. Why? Because it's given by God. Now, before the husband begins to nudge the wife, which if I was in your seat, I'd probably be doing that at this point um, to make sure she's paying attention. I want to mention what headship is not, and then I want to allow Ephesians 5 to elaborate God's design for headship a little bit further. 
A husband demonstrating biblical headship does not lord over his wife. There's no room in God's design for a husband to exert authority in such a way that he becomes a burden to his wife. Real headship is when the husband sees the burden of his wife and desires to take the burden from her. It's walking in the door after work, realizing your wife's day may have been more difficult and stressful than yours. And I say this as a man who sometimes, a lot of times, has a hard time realizing that. So I speak to myself, husbands, and I speak to all you, husbands, when you get home from work, Sean Powers, you all husbands, should not beeline for the couch. You should find your wife and ask her, what can I do to help you? What can I do with the kids? Honey, what burdens have you been carrying today, and how can I take these burdens from you? Several, several years ago, I listened to a sermon on Ephesians 5.25, and the pastor said this. I'll, ne- I'll never forget it. He said, husbands, if you need a few minutes to recover after work, this is what you do. When you pull into the driveway, you give yourself a few minutes. Because when you get in the house, you're back to work. You're back to serving. You're back to caring. Because once you walk in that door, you are called to self-sacrificial love and care. Biblical headship is dialing in to the needs of your wife and kids so that you can demonstrate the love of Christ to them. Ephesians 5.25 fills out the call of a husband. Husband, Sean Powers, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Self-sacrificial headship is putting the needs of your wife over your own needs just like Christ. Just think about the standard. Just think about where God has placed the bar for husbands. It's not a low bar. Husbands are to love like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He took on the burdens of the church and died for the church. Biblical headship is anchored in self-sacrificial love. With Christ-like, self-sacrificial love as the anchor, husbands are to lead, they are to protect and provide for their, for their family. You know, if you hold the line on biblical marriage, critics will let you know their disapproval, right? If you hold the line, you'll find critics. But what, here's the challenge for all of us men and husbands, what if we became known instead, not, not just that, but also, known for our self-sacrificial love for our wives. That would be compelling to a world where brokenness abounds. To be a godly husband or a single godly man is hard. The bar is high. A married man needs Jesus to be able to lead his wife and family well. A single man needs Jesus to rightly align his thoughts, actions, and desires to honor and protect his sisters in Christ. The culture wants to emasculate men. The world around you tells you to give in to your desires by objectifying women instead of treating them as an image bearer of God. Being a man in the world is easy. That doesn't take any energy or effort. But being a man of God is hard, 
It requires sacrifice, but it's good. There's so much more that can be said about headship, but let me move on. At least see this. Biblical headship is not a consequence of the fall, but a part of God's design before the fall that we're called to move in toward today and continue to strive for today. Now, what about the word submit in verse 24 of Ephesians 5? How in the world is submission a part of God's design for marriage? Let's reread the passage again, verse 24 of Ephesians 5. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So before going any further, let's connect this passage with the foundational passage in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Not only do we have an order established by the man being created first and then the woman, but the woman was created with the purpose to help the man as he leads. Implicit in God's design for the women is submission to her husband. Submission is implicit in Genesis and made crystal clear in Ephesians 5.24, and I could also take you to Colossians 3.18. Now, when some, some of the folks read Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, the idea of a woman being a helper and submitting to a husband feels uncomfortable, Right? It can feel uncomfortable. What does that mean? Nobody likes to submit. It's hard. However, let me say this about my marriage and a bit more about the complementary nature of my marriage. And all this is true. I am a complete and utter disaster without Sharice. Utter disaster. If you ask the people closest to me, they'll tell you it's true. It would take me hours to list out the things that would not get done unless God gave me Sharice. Things wouldn't get done. Um, let me make this really personal. It's actually happened twice in recent memory. Um, while preparing for a sermon, I was sharing with Sharice some of the difficulties about all my thoughts and preaching them for 40-ish minutes, and my wife, my helpmate, said this. She said, Sean, the church needs to hear God's word, not you. After she said that, I thought to myself, what an awesome wife, what an awesome helpmate. For Sharice to be my helper in marriage does not lessen her value. Instead, submitting and Submitting and helping affirms the beauty of God's design for women in marriage. It displays the glory of God. I'm going to allow a woman to express this biblical truth. The woman is equal with the man. Her strength and her intelligence are not in conflict with her unique role of voluntary submission to her husband's leadership. Together they are co-heirs. Eve's help gladly oriented toward Adam's leadership. Ladies and gentlemen, complementarianism and complementarian submission does not mean a wife is any less equal, any less created in the image of God. She's not inferior, a doormat, or controlled. A husband who treats his wife in such a way needs to repent to God and then to his wife. Conversely, complementarianism and complementarian submission is the wife acknowledging the husband's unique God-given leadership and authority for her and the family. Biblical submission includes the wife coming alongside the husband to help lead the family. 
just, just consider the greatest act of submission ever. It shows us the importance and the theology of this word. Jesus, while he was praying to God the Father on the Mount of Olives, knowing that the road before him led to his death on a cross, said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted to the headship of the Father. What a beautiful, gospel-saturated picture this is for men and women in marriage. We've got to redeem the word submission from our culture. Just like the story I told you at the beginning of my sermon about my classmate, culture's confusing what is supposed to be beautiful, and it's making it ugly. However, in this church, right, right here, we can allow God to work in our lives so that God can continue to redeem our sexuality, our singleness, and marriages. Everyone in this room comes to God broken. And it's by and through the gospel where brokenness turns into beauty. It's through the cross of Christ where the hurting can find healing. No matter how broken or hurt a person is, God's love, his mercy, his grace are greater. I know that when you say what you are for, you're also suggesting what you're against, and I get that. When it comes to God's design for men and women in the world, we need to be clear. We really do. That's why it's a distinctive of our denomination. It's why it's a distinctive of this church. But we also want to be a church that is a hospital for the hurting. We want to be known for our acts of love, grace, and mercy. We, we want to treat every individual who comes into this church as an image bearer of God. So yes, we will stand for the truth found in God's word, no matter what is going on in our culture. That is going to be the case. But we also want to invite everyone in to hear the truth, live the truth, and be healed by the truth who is Christ. So, Lord willing, we grow as a church and there will be people who come into our space who are broken because of marriages, who are broken because of numerous sins as single people, right? We're going to run into broken people. And we can stand for God's truth and say, this is a place where you can be healed. This is the place where you, we're going to allow you to apply the gospel. We're, we're going to walk alongside you, and we're not going to give up on you. Standing for truth and being a welcoming community are two things that we're going to value, especially in this culture where we're going to run into people who are so broken, so hurt because of what the devil has done to twist sexuality, gender, and marriage. Let's pray.